I mean, but then the, the, the sad thing is, though, that the, the last version of you that I will remember is this version. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as you so, will have done with your parents as well, the last time you saw them. Yeah. That's the last time you remember them. I mean, your dad died Absolutely. very young, though. Yeah. So at the same time, I guess, you know, I'm very lucky that you didn't die young, and you're very oh, lucky God, that you've lived a full life. You know? That's a, a sad Terrible. thing. Well, it's not your fault, though. There's nothing... There's... No, no, it's not my fault. I'm not, it's, it's just terrible. I can't. That really was a tragedy for me because I did love him very much. And if I could remember his face, that would be the sort of background to But your love stays regardless oh, God, of your memories. Yes, it doesn't yes, matter. Yes. You experience the memories that. of when I did know him, that brief period, you know, up till I was 16. Yeah, and that can't be taken away. And I've been very lucky compared to you. Literally, when you when I was, was it six, you had a heart attack. I've always... So <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah you, well, you would. So I, would, I would hope you'd remember Ooh, I had a great time after that, didn't I? I stayed down there in Cornwall for a year. Yeah, I know all of your so, heart attacks and your heart bypass have been very... Yeah happy for you you've had a very lucky war you've had a very lucky life yeah. I mean it and is a shame that you've lost so much the, but you've had a lot the quadruple bypass I know that's a major op so I've always thought well, you were going to die four it days wasn't I know. Yeah. the quickest I've ever been out of the they said to me, you're the fastest that's ever been out of the special, right. what they call it, when they put you up there. Special care unit, I'm going to special, say. Special, yeah. Well, you know, the heart well, attack and all the operation were a very bad one. You know, I was very lucky. Well, you described having a quadruple heart bypass as kind of like a payback for the fact that you didn't see any action in, in, in the war. <laughs> no, I did say like, that. You knew people who died and you knew people who'd experienced actual life and death experiences and you didn't. You had a lucky war. And then when you had your quadruple heart bypass and you said that was for you your <laughs> war you, you were facing you felt you, you, you went into it with grace because you were thinking of the people who had risked their lives in the war when you I went in I don't remember this you thing. said you, it's I'm a recording sure right. I mean there, there is a recording you did it as a spark story this is one of the I think it's the only I think you've done two spark stories maybe one maybe the only one that you maybe did was that one, one yeah. do you remember you Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. Episode 12, Hearts Breaking. Additional to the topics covered in the general content notes, this episode will feature war, medical operations, suicidal ideation, and spoilers for The Lord of the Rings. There is a kind of thing about having lived through a war. And it's not to do with this, all the sort of triumphalism or the politics. And all. It's just the fact that you are living in a rather strange way in society, which everybody accepts and knows about. It was a minor heart attack, wasn't it? 
I think so. I don't remember it being emphasised all that to me at the hospital, but maybe it was. It certainly felt like it. Yeah, I was sort of up in a couple of days taking tea round and arguing with the physiotherapist. You were taking the tea round? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I had a good time. I always do in (laughs) hospital. (laughs) You know, I met the guy in the opposite bed. It was quite interesting, you know. We'd all had heart attacks. I mean, the idea of it was terrible, but when I actually got to hospital and found myself in this bed and they put these pills in me and, you know, there were nurses around and it was all right. You know, from then on, it sort of just... I was only in about, you know, what, the usual... I don't know how long you are for a hospital, sort of six or seven days. We were on holiday in Cornwall. We were staying with my dad's ex-wife, sharing her guest bed. I woke up in the morning and my dad wasn't there. I called for him, and a different voice, not one I recognised, told me that he was in the room next door. I found him sitting up in her bed, smiling at me but looking weak. There were other adults around. I was told that my dad had had a heart attack in the night and that he was resting until the ambulance arrived. Later in life, he told me that he'd been sitting up with an old friend who had been a nurse, smoking and drinking and listening to Leonard Cohen when he'd felt a pain in his chest. He carried on for a bit, hoping that it would go away. When it didn't, he mentioned it to her, and she suggested that it might be a heart attack and told him to ring the ambulance. I don't remember much more about the specifics of it than that. I found out more when making an episode of my podcast about it, interviewing him and the rest of the family and piecing things together. I remember being super shocked and worried when he hadn't been where he was supposed to be, But weirdly, after I saw him sitting up in bed and was told what had happened, I didn't really worry. I guess because he was able to talk and everyone kept telling me he was going to be all right. I was only six, so I hadn't really thought much about death yet. Well, some of this story may be familiar to you, Um, but uh, it's about hearts, so I had to think of a story about hearts. And... um, I must say my heart was perfectly all right until I was in my mid-60s, except for the fact that as an open heart it was probably broken every month from the time I was nine until the time I was 70. Um, In fact, it was even broken earlier than that. There was a young blonde-haired girl in the infants that I still remember. When I was in my mid-60s, I was taking my two sons... um, Uh, who were then about six and ten, and my granddaughter, who was about seven, uh, down to see uh, my ex-wife in her cottage in in Cornwall. And um, I was taking them on the train, and we were sitting in the restaurant car, which you could do. There was a sort of car next door to the restaurant car, which our American friends would probably call a club car, uh, where you could drink. And in those days, you could actually smoke. So I was smoking and drinking and the children were consuming whatever they'd wanted, which I thought would keep them quiet. And I got a slight pain, but I didn't think very much of that and forgot about it. Anyway, we got there that night and um, the children went to bed and my ex-wife went to bed and a friend, of uh, an old friend of ours, who uh, a woman who, who I'd known a long time ago, uh, and who was actually a nurse, uh, uh, um, a district nurse, came down to stay. And we sat up that night together 
and uh, drinking whiskey and smoking, or at least I was smoking, I don't know whether she was, um, and we were talking about old days and times and things, and I said to her in the middle of it, I said, by the way, um, Sue, I, I got this odd sort of pain yesterday, but I, I don't suppose I should do anything about it. She said, well, where was it? And I said, well, I don't know, somewhere down here in the chest sort of area. Um, and she said, well, I think you should see a doctor. But I said, well, I don't really want to do that. I mean, that, that's a bit extreme. And I went to bed. The whole thing would make an excellent fast because, I mean, the night that I had, the, the night of the morning, subsequent morning I had the heart attack, I was sitting up with Sue downstairs drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. And at some point in the conversation I said, Sue, I do get these pains, you know, do you think I should do something about it? Taking another sip of whiskey and <laughs> smoking another cigarette. And she said, yeah, I think you should go and see a doctor, you know, get it checked out. Then she eventually went off, and I was sort of in bed there, and I actually suddenly got these terrible pains so strong that I went and fetched her or called her or something, and she came down. So there I was in a Cornish hospital having a heart attack, which I recovered from. And, you know, apart from my heart being broken every month or so continually after that, nothing really happened again until I, some 10, 12 years later, I... Um, had a sharp pain, which I knew then, by then, was in fact uh, something to do with my heart. And um, there's a word for it, which I can't remember. I can't remember many words. Um, uh, but, but anyway, the, the doctor said, you've got... Um, angina, thank you. Thank you. Yes, you're, you've got angina. We've got, we, you better do something about that. You better go straight into hospital. I think it was when I went to primary school that I first became aware that my dad was old. That's when you start to see how other people's families work. And I quickly discovered that there were quite a few unusual things about my family setup. Other children were surprised I had a niece who was older than me. They were confused when I called my half-sisters sisters. They noticed that my dad was old. They pointed out that my dad was from the same generation as their grandparents. Adults would notice that he was old too. They would normally say things like, I can't believe how fit he is for his age. When I was at university, I found adults began to change their statements to, No, he can't be in his 70s. People don't say things like that now. He is finally believably the age that he is. When I was nine or ten, I woke up in the middle of the night, lying in bed in my dad's flat in Coventry. I had a sudden realisation. If, as I was beginning to believe, there was no life after death, then when you die, you basically cease to exist. The world may carry on, but you won't know it. You won't remember you. In some ways, you will never have existed at all. This terrified me, and I ran into my dad's room and woke him up. He asked me what was wrong and I explained it all to him. He said, if you don't exist, you won't know that you don't exist. But we can't know what happens when we die. We know we are alive now and we are safe now. This was the first time I remember realising that death existed. And even though my dad's words did comfort me in a way, I also realised that he would die. 
I held him tightly and fell asleep. You smile at me and you take me in your arms and you say that if you don't exist then you cannot feel you will not be able to care. Fear is for the living and who cares what will be because you are here with me in this time and in this place we are safe inside this bed. We can go to sleep. It's safe to go to the other thing that made me start to contemplate his age was him reading The Lord of the Rings to me. It's a book filled with old men, and I saw elements of my dad in many of them. Tom Bombadil, Bilbo, Denethor, Saruman, and especially Gandalf, who begins as Gandalf the Grey and ends as Gandalf the White. Just as I've watched my dad's hair change during my lifetime, I think it may have even significantly changed during the time that we were reading the book. My dad has particularly bushy eyebrows and I remember lying against his chest and looking up at them as he did his Gandalf voice. The other old man in the book who particularly chimed with something inside my relationship with my dad was Theoden. I cried when he died, but my tears were as much for the future death of the father reading to me as they were for the old king killed in a last stand. When I was nine, you would read to me from that book every weekend. When I'd come to stay, I'd sit there all morning listening to your voice. In the middle of the book, there is a broken man who meant himself for a final stand. He recovers from the sickness that has infected his land. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing two hopes. And I rode and two hearts breaking. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, he rode singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. Hope he rekindled and in hope ended. Over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, unto long glory. But Mary stood at the foot of the green mound, and he wept. And when the song was ended, he arose and cried. Theoden King, Theoden King, farewell, as a father you were to me, for a little while, farewell. I saw the king in the story as you, and I grieved when he died for your death too. Theoden King, as a father you were to me for a little while. It's not the dark that I'm scared of, it is the sense that there's nothing after this. When you've gone, you will have gone, I will never hear your voice again. When I get depressed and anxious, I sometimes experience suicidal ideation. I didn't realise for years that I was someone you could describe as being suicidal because I didn't think about dying, I thought about stopping existing. Sometimes I would consider ways to make myself stop existing. But I didn't use the word die, not to myself and not to other people, and somehow that managed to trick me. It's interesting to think now, that when I first imagined stopping existing, that idea horrified me. Now, it frequently seems very appealing. I'm still pretty terrified of my dad stopping existing. He has been such a part of my life that it feels like a world without him in it is impossible. But ever since I was a child, I have been imagining that world. I've played out his death 
so many times. I've written it into fiction and songs. I've spent hours in my mind going through how it will be, what I might think and do, how it will affect me, how it will affect my family. And I've always thought that it would probably happen soon, but it never has. When I was 15 years old, my dad, whose heart was playing up again, had a quadruple heart bypass. He was scheduled for a triple heart bypass, but when they opened him up, they decided to give him an upgrade. So I went into hospital, and um, I was there, and they did a few tests on me. And then the James Robertson Justice sort of character came round, who was the the consultant with his team of white, uh, his followers, his white-coated followers, students and other doctors, and they all stood at my bed and he said, this man's um, condition is life-threatening. We've got to get him into surgery pretty quickly. It was, I think, on the Thursday, and he said, we'll send him down on Friday. I said, can I go home? And he said, no, 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 you, you, you stay here and get stuff sent in, get your, your family to send stuff in, which they did. And there were two very nice uh, young nurses who looked after me. And... Um, I went in to have this... I asked him, I said, what does it mean, a quadruple bypass? He said, oh, well, we just, we just um, cut down your breastbone and open your chest and take your heart out virtually and mess about with it and put it back in and, you know. So I said, oh, well, that sounds good. <laughs> um, and I thought, yeah, well, I should be terrified. And then I suddenly remembered that I'd had, like... I know people think of the sort of people who are at war, the Second World War, etc., because of sort of films and stories. The only ones that are told are the interesting ones. Uh, one has the impression that everybody who was in the Second World War was sort of fighting the Germans. In actual fact, like most armies in most situations, well, certainly since technology has, has, has arisen, has, has, has sort of made it necessary... Um, for every sort of person who's actually in the infantry or in the tanks and actually facing immediate sort of possible death, there are vast resources of people in the Ordnance Corps and the RIMI and various things like this. And I was one of those, one of the 80% who were probably didn't see very much in the army. I was in a heavy ACAC regiment which followed uh, the British Army through Africa and Italy uh, during a time when we had complete air supremacy, so there was really no need for ACAC guns at all. There was no, no, there were no air defence needed. But you know, you met, you met women, Italian women, and African <laughs> women. You you drank in foreign bars. You 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 know you did your whatever job you had to do, like laying the telephone lines or that sort of thing. But generally speaking, your life was pretty easy. And so when I suddenly faced this quadruple bypass and this cleaving of my chest and all that, I thought, my God, this is my chance to be sort of a hero, you know, somebody (laughs) I'm sort of facing death, you know. And in fact, I enjoyed it. Uh, (laughs) The whole experience became for me a great sort of, you know, spiritual uplift. I thought at last I'm sort of level with all those comrades of mine who, because I had, I had a great friend who'd been in England and on D-Day he'd gone over and within two days he'd been blown out of two tanks and he came back and that was the end of his war. He was rather messed up by it. So anyway, I saw this as a great challenge and uh, 
I went through it and I got out quicker than anybody ever had through the special care unit and here I still am, amazingly. And that is my, uh, my version. <laughs> The operation also clashed with a family wedding, so most of the family were unable to be with him as much as they would have liked. I didn't go to the wedding. I just couldn't. For some months before you were actually called up, you were sort of had to register. So you go to a local address which they give you, which in my case was a drill hall somewhere in London. You have a medical. But if you pass that, then they pass you on to the next stage, which means they can then consider where they were going to put you and that would depend upon the number of people they got at any particular time you know whether the navy was short the air force was short then they decided to make you a radio operator yeah wireless operator wireless operator a radio driver wireless operator that was my title wireless operators were needed in all arms of the army i mean the infantry had sets which their wireless operators carried. Field artillery had wireless operators with them. If you would be far enough behind the lines and you had time, you would then establish a telephone network. That's one of the things we did. You you would lay out a telephone between the batteries. But if you're moving, the means of communication was by wireless. But these were very old-fashioned sets. I mean, they were sets with valves. They were bloody big by present-day standards. And they're quite heavy. When he went on the course, which I was totally in that wrong, the equipment, you had to learn how a radio set worked and how to change the valves and that. That was one part, of course. The other part was what is called procedure, which was you had a sort of strict verbal procedure, the way you addressed. You know, you didn't just get on and chat. You had to get on and say sort of, I can't remember it. The next thing was, who is a radio operator are you going to be assigned to? Yeah. Infantry, tanks field artillery, or ridiculously, retrospectively, to the ACAC. Okay, and I was assigned to a heavy ACAC. What is ACAC? Anti-aircraft. They depended on radar, which was a great sort of wartime invention, which in fact could identify target aircraft. Searchlights, which were used to expose these aircraft. And predictors, which was a, which was a kind of early, very early kind of pre-computer computer, which would actually predict how far the shell had to travel, you know, what charges for whatever. I didn't know this because I wasn't a gunner, but that's what they did. And you had four guns in a troop, and you had three troops in a battery, and they'd be distributed around the place. You all got sent for a six weeks induction course, which was an infantry training course where you were given the rifle and you learnt to drill and you were marched about and learnt how to organise your kit for kit inspection and all this sort of stuff. Bullshit, basically. It was a kind of induction to being out, out of the civic world and into a world where all ideas of civic democracy had to be surrendered to the greater cause. So, okay. I mean, everybody accepted it. You know, that's what I mean life was like. I mean, you were in a controlled situation. And did you accept it? Yeah, in a way I did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people accepted it various according to the personality, but this is what I mean about being in a war. It was just something which... You had to do. You had to do. When my dad talks about the bypass, he sometimes sees it in terms of World War Two. He had a very lucky war. In many ways, you could say he actually had a great time. There was a kid called Lacador, a little Arab boy, who used to throw things at the sparrows in the eucalyptus trees. 
who became sort of a little massacre, you know. But then I suddenly got malaria and was taken to this guard depot and the medical officer said, you've got malaria and sent me up to, to this hospital, which was way up, way further. Because I think by then, Rommel had been defeated and they were just getting ready to invade Sicily and subsequently Italy. Anyway, so I got sent up to this hospital in a place called Guelma for my malaria, where the thing I can remember is that you've got a bottle of Guinness every day. <laughs> in this hospital ward, and you saw nurses. And anyway, I got sent back from there on a train. There was a train which came all the way back from the east yeah, to the west, coming back to Algiers. And I travelled with this group of guys from the Premier Commander Francais, which was the first French commander, and they were all French. And I spoke a bit of French then, because they had learnt a bit at school and I used it in Algiers. And I came back with these guys and we travelled in the cattle trucks, open cattle trucks, the kind of hell ships that went to Belson, but just a few of us in one. I mean, this, wasn't, this was just because these were the things on the train. I mean, I mean there were great six of us... Lots of French wine, which they got on board. We got thoroughly pissed. They taught me Chateau-André. And I had to teach What's them... That? That's a song. Okay, it's a song. Oh, the... Um, Edith Piaf. Edith Piaf. Yeah. And I, in return, I had to teach them something about the white kiss of drove. You know, there'll always be a... The war is over, the white cliffs of Dover, tomorrow, just you wait and see. That's yeah, to teach Vera Lynn, French, isn't it? Vera Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. And these French commanders, they were all about my age, you know. We were, we, I mean, we were just drinking wine, lying in these open cattle trucks, and the doors open, and the sun shining out, and the Guelman Mountains behind, and we had about five days, you know. We could have been out in the army. I mean, there was no discipline, there was nobody... In charge of us. That was great. That was really great. Anyway, then I got back to Algiers and I had to wait in the camp because the regiment I was with had by then moved to Italy. He was a radio operator and got to travel the world, never seeing any frontline action. Not all of his contemporaries were so lucky. When we did go to Yugoslavia, which was at the end of 1944, the 85th Heavy Attack Regiment, which I was in, was broken up. All the wireless operators were going to the infantry reinforcement training depot in Naples to be transferred to the infantry. And we all travelled over in the middle of the night. We arrived there in the cold, in the cold, miserable, because there can be cold, miserable days in Italy. Very early in the morning, and the sergeant was delighted to see these bastards from the ACAC. He's going to make sure go into the, the infantry and go on the front lines, right? He had a reasonable sense of resentment, but being a sergeant, he expressed it with considerable force. Um, so we were all desperately unhappy and thought, this is it, off we go, this is the end. And if you'd have gone, you'd have probably died, I yeah? could have died, yeah. You would have been on the front line. I'd have certainly had a ch- very good chance of becoming a carefree. And you'd have actually seen combat, which I think... And you... I would have seen combat. Yeah. Uh, so if you hadn't have died, you'd have been scarred by I might have been involved in it, but I would have seen it. You'd have seen your friends die. I'd have seen my friends yeah, yeah. It would have been and people right. who, even strangers dying in front of yeah, you, is not great. Right. What's up? But in fact, as I think I've told you before, 
This officer comes along and says, "Come, just as we're lined up in front of the sergeant." So you're stood in a line in a cold, wet, cold, miserable, thinking, "This is it. You're going to die." And this sergeant had said, "You know, you're going to stay here. We're going to sort you out, and you'll be trained by the time you leave." So we thought, "We're in for hell here. We're in for a sort of hellish time here, and then we're going to control." And this officer comes along and suddenly steps forward and says. He said, you know, you chaps have been sent over here, now you're going to the infantry, but we have got a, an operation coming up. I can't tell you anything about it, but we need volunteers for it. Anybody man who's prepared to volunteer for this, I, you know, I'd be interested to know, would you step forward? And of course, 14 people, or however many of us there were, there would have been about 14 or 16, we all stepped forward as great heroes, not as great heroes at all. Most <laughs> people are thinking, nothing. As bad as the final. At least this is an unknown quantity. Yeah. You can't tell how this is going to work out. We know if we stand here, you know if you stand here, you're going to be have a six weeks hell in this place, then you're going in the infantry. And that could be it. So everybody stepped forward. So we all went so we all thought we're going on this great secret expedition, which we all assumed had some danger to it. But we were sent back to Bari where we joined NACAC Regiment, the NACAC Regiment, which the idiots in the higher command had decided they would use as a field artillery regiment because the Germans very successfully used their 88mm gun as an anti-tank gun, a field artillery gun, an anti-aircraft gun. The Germans had cleverly designed the gun. So we had this bloody anti this huge muzzle philosophy and very powerful. 3.7 gun, but it was mounted on four wheels, it had to be hauled by a bloody great tractor. It was only designed to shoot up, you know, high in the sky. So it went to Yugoslavia. So you were part of the force that retook Yugoslavia something force, yeah. on behalf of the Allies? No, no, the partisans retook, retook Yugoslavia, but the commander, I think it was the second commander, had gone over there already to Dubrovnik. Right. And was, in fact, assisting the partisans in following the retreating Germans. So we now follow these retreating Germans with our guns. But the first gun fell off the road, the second <laughs> one overturned, the third one got... You know, it was this kind of thing. So you... They finally got one near it, and they fired three shells, and by then the Germans had gone beyond it, and it was a total farce. As he was being put under, he thought of all the people of his generation who had put their lives on the line, and... He faced it without fear, seeing it as nothing compared to their experiences. He faced death, then, on that operating table. But he survived. You said to me, Dad, that when you went in for your heart bypass, that that was kind of like your war. Uh, That you sort of felt had this kind of... it, It related to your feelings about... The war, the, yeah, yeah. What, what yeah. did, what did you mean by that? Well, when you said that? Yeah, well, in a strange way, I, ne- I mean, a heart by- I had it was a quadruple heart bypass. I mean, it's an easy operation nowadays, but it's quite an interesting one. I mean, it, it's changed since. It's quite less. But then they used to sort of split your first thing is to split your breastbone right down. Yeah. To open your ribs, and then you know. Yeah, no, you've so got like open heart there. surgery. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you were—I tell you—you you didn't know that you were totally unconscious, obviously. But I mean, I suppose it could be a frightening idea for lots of people, or some people. 
but I actually, <laughs> I almost enjoyed it. In fact, I mean, I, I would say I did enjoy it, except that I think that sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't. But, you know, I mean, I went in, the whole thing came up very quickly because I, I had a sort of banter. I bantered with a, with a senior consultant who was on one of these great rounds. Like, oh, yes, because I called him, can't remember names, but in the, the Doctor films, there was, there was always a pompous consultant going his rounds who people would know because it was a familiar film, film series at the time. And I sort of taxed him with this name in a sort of bantering way. But he, we actually got on quite well. And then he said, well, you know, you, this is a life-threatening condition you've got. We'll have to get you in on Friday. And so it was only a two or three days before I came back. And when I went in, and Joe was there. No, no, was Joe there before? I know she, I know she uh, was there before. I'm not quite sure. We, we, none of us I can exactly get the chronology in. exactly clear, yeah. I don't think. Anyway, I got on very well with the two nurses who were sort of, you know, getting me ready and all that. Went through the operation and I was in intensive care. I woke up in intensive care and I was totally, I mean, I, I was kind of exultant. It was very strange. And I, I got out I was got, got out of the intensive care unit quicker than anybody had ever been at, you know. They let me get out and they, I recovered that yeah. fast. And then I was home and, I mean, the whole thing, I was only in hospital about four days. But how does it relate? How well, anyway, the, yes, the, the thing is that I just sort of felt, well, I've not, I mean, I've never in my life, I've never had a sort of violent confrontation or a situation where I, um, which I might well have done in the war. I mean, a vast number of, you know, everybody in tanks or the infantry or bomber commander or anything is, would have faced actual yeah, death. your contemporaries did. With yeah. death. Anyway, so that didn't worry me. I mean, they were just, you know, nobody worried about it because it was just, you, you know, luck of the draw and all that. Yeah. Um, but um, when I did have come with this bypass, I suddenly thought, well, you know, this is really the first time in life when I've actually faced something significant, you know. Um Something bigger than yeah, you. Yeah, and it wasn't that I felt guilty and that this, this 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 relieved my guilt. It wasn't as strong as that, my feelings about the, you know, the war or um, luck, the lack of life. Um, but uh, that sort of triggered it. Feeling. You sort of felt a kinship then? Or? Yeah, and I mean, the, the hospital was nice, the nurses were nice. It was, it was much easier keen. than I mean, I was young. I was still young enough to be physically keen on people. <laughs> they were both sort of attractive in different ways, and they were both very sweet. Nurses. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, um, it was a kind of, yeah, it was. A, so I actually sort of felt it was a, it was almost like sort of having, you know, been in a prize fight or something and come out and won. So it never felt to me like I'd been in, had this sort of, had a negative, in a negative sense, been... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a very positive. Yeah, you, you, you triumphed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I felt, that's the way I felt. You know, as though in a game, as though against an opponent. You know, like that, so like a boxer. Of, yeah, you know, or if Murray ever won a, a what? What is it? What is it? What, what do you call it? A grand slam. A grand slam. You know, yes. So, 
And so, I mean, and it was good, it was relatively recently though when you you talked to me about the the, the war thing, um, yeah, like but... the about the relationship between the heart bypass and the war and how they yeah. kind of but as I say, merged I mean, it, for you in a ways that you can't even. It doesn't sound like you can one hundred percent even kind of sum it up because it's not even it's not getting rid of like war guilt because you no, didn't exactly or, have war guilt no and it's not exactly it comparable no but it was just something significant yeah i just thought so i suppose i just thought casually well you know I, you know i've never i didn't i've never had this sort of situation you know everybody you know it can happen to anybody anytime sort of that i don't know but it was strange but it was very good. I mean, I'm very glad I did feel like that. You know, it would have been terrible. Because you weren't depressed. scared. And you weren't depressed. No, no. I mean, Eric had one little fairly soon after that. I don't think he would. He, he's always sort of not understood how I could treat it as... So cavalierly. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but, I mean, I guess maybe the reason that you relate it to it in terms of relate it to the war is um, to do with bravery, I guess. That... that, that you didn't have to be brave in the war. Yeah. But I you did have so. to be brave. Yeah. I suppose, well, yes, you know, or just courage or whatever. You know. Courage, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe that's why it resonated. Yes, but I mean, I, the resonation was only sort of brief. You know, I wasn't carrying it through the experience. The re- the, the, I wasn't thinking about this comparison. All the way through, it was just, just a moment. It was just something about, I, I'd had a sort of flickering idea of it, but which then left me in an attitude towards this, of sort of Murray-facing Federer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it just left me feeling like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I say, so I didn't sort of... I don't remember, you know, when I, when I before I had the general or anything, I don't ever remember sort of thinking, oh, God, now I'm going, you know, now, now I've got to, oh, let's hope they do it. I just sort of, it all just happened. Then I woke up in the, I remember waking up in the intensive care unit and so I must have been sort of grinning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Strange. But it just, it was, it was good luck to be able to feel like that. Absolutely. I mean, the, my biggest regret is the sort of fact that I didn't, my relationship with my father ended, you know, when I went to, when I went away. But that's not and, your fault. Because... Died, I didn't, you know, I wasn't there when he died. Yeah, but that's I not your fault. Told, hmm? That's not your fault. No, it's not my fault. But I, I mean, mean, you that, can't. That, 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 I, that, that I ceased, that I didn't know him. Well, not a regret, yeah. then. It's a. Uh, well, it is a regret. You it, wish you'd known him. Yes, I wish I, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I had. That, you wish he hadn't died, that, basically. Yeah, I wish he hadn't when died. When he died. You know, because I hadn't seen him all through all that time, you know, when. And we were very close. And he died but, when I mean, you were... not only that, but I hadn't seen him. I hadn't, it wasn't, a, you know, we weren't communicating. I didn't know what he was thinking. He didn't know what I what, yeah. where I was, and I didn't know where he was. He um, died when, how old were you then, when he died? Well, wait a minute, 1944, he died. So I was... Uh, I was 20. So funny. Yeah, I was 20. Because, like, I, I think... But I hadn't seen him since I'd been, what, age I always... 17. Off... After I 
after I stopped thinking you were going to die the next day, I started thinking that you would die when I was 20. Like, I, that's when I thought you would die. Like, for most of my teenage years, I thought, I'm just going to get to be 20, and then there, he won't be there anymore. And you didn't have that opportunity of what mm. I've had since then, which is, like, know. you know, yeah. 11 more years of knowing you. Like, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Like, I went away I went away from you but I kept in regular contact and you came down lots of times and yeah, when you when you came good. down it was always an event you know you would take us out for meals we would be ridiculous like we would have like loads of drinks me you and Jen you know it was wonderful like you know you coming to town was like the magicians coming you know <laughs> I mean like you know and we would have great conversations and we would have great times and yeah, we would get drunk and we would you know have fun and we, we you know you came down for some quite significant nights actually in the middle of my that training I had to go I was given compassionate leave un- unexpectedly to me because my father was meant to be dying he had tuberculosis he was in Gloucester so I, I was given compassionate leave and I got on a train to go down to see him and he ironically told me he wasn't like it. Right? But anyway, on the way back, I met this land girl in the train. There were two land girls and it was, it was a crowded wartime train. You can't imagine what a wartime train was like. Sort of soldiers, sailors, bang. I met this land girl and we had a sort of brief... We didn't have any. I mean, we were on the train. We had a sort of, you can't call it a relationship, but we got very friendly on that. And somehow or other, I told her where I was. And when we went on a route march one day, I remember she and her friend suddenly appeared. This was near the end of our basic training and joined the ranks. And Sergeant Seal, who was this kind of regular, tough, you know, Kipling-esque sergeant, he didn't mind, he accepted it. It was a strange mixture of authoritarianism and... We could of, die tomorrow. We could die tomorrow and also a kind of working class thing. But, you know, we're not we're not the fucking toffs. We're not the officers and all that, you know. I don't know. It's very difficult. Put your finger on it. At university, my friend and I used to joke about which one of our parents would die first. Her mum, who had a terminal illness, or my dad, who had old age. Both our parents are still alive, 18 years later. You can try to anticipate death, but it rarely runs to schedule. Now, when I think about my dad dying, it is more a hope. I hope that it will happen quickly and soon. I still don't know how I will feel in a world that doesn't have him in it, But I also wonder if it does still have him in it. He is now both less inside himself and less inside the world. So he rode to a green hillock, and there set his banner, and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing, 
to hope's end I rode, and to heart's breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. These staves he spoke, yet he laughed as he said them, for once more the lust of battle was on him. And he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again at the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother, Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk. Spark True Stories can be found on Twitter at Spark True Story or on their website stories.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to podcastviews.com then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes and if you do it you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. But when you think what they actually did... Yeah, they... They bypassed I mean, four of your... Well, I mean, the first thing they do is saw down your breastbone with an electric saw, whoomph, like that. Yeah, because you've got like a pull cross back, scar on your chest. Yeah, now. they don't do that now. They do it. They've, they've improved on that. Davidson had something slightly different. They didn't cut the whole breastbone. But, but I mean, you don't know anything about it because you're under a general anaesthetic for that operation. Yeah. How did you feel going in? Did you not... Like, well, you might not right. live. 
you not think about it? I didn't think that. I didn't think I would. No, I was very confident. Really? I was treating it like a sort of war. You know, I'm, this is, I'm going to win. You know. Yeah. No, I, I actually in, kind of enjoyed it. Wow. It's very strange. Not when I was told, you know, not when I had the pay first papers like the angina and went in and was examined. I mean, I was sort of worried then, not sort of, what is it? But once they'd announced it, he said, it's life-threatening, we'll do it on Friday. I thought, OK. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm... Um, absurdly. 